Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Due to the overwhelming response of questions we received for Dr. Timmy, we have decided to split this podcast into two episodes. The first episode will contain pregnancy questions, labour and miscarriage. In next week's episode, we will then cover tears, caesareans, VBACs, fertility, infertility and postpartum questions. Um, we hope you enjoy today's episode and then stay tuned for next week's. Okay, so today we are super excited to have Dr. Timmy here, who is an obstetrician, a gynecologist and a fertility specialist, and most importantly, my dad um, and a grandfather to Poppy and Sloan. Um, And we did a question sticker thing out onto Instagram to ask what people wanted to you know, what what they regretted that they hadn't asked their obstetrician or wanted to ask their obstetrician or were too embarrassed to ask their obstetrician. And we were inundated with questions. So um, this might be a long podcast. This might be a long one. We're going to try and get through as many as possible. We're definitely going to try and get through the questions that were asked um, multiple times. Um, but if there is, you know, um, mass support for an encore, <laughs> I can probably get in touch with him again and, um, if you can get him, it. get him back in yeah. here. Um, also we're just calling him Dr. Timmy today. Um, just because he doesn't want this to come across as some kind of, kind of advertising ploy for his practice. He's quite against that. Um, Clearly his last name is my maiden name, so it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to find out who he is. It's not really anonymous, but we'll call him Dr. Timmy today um, and we're excited to give him your questions. Well, it was really only a matter of time before I moved into this podcast space because uh, I checked this morning and I, I do have 150 followers on Instagram. So I'm, Who are I, you, oh, Dr. I, I, Timmy? I don't mean 150,000, I mean 150 full stop. So I'm sort of an influencer. Uh, Jade and I are starstruck. We are. I'm speechless. If you can get me back for a second episode, I'll see if I can get it up to one sixty through my fame. We might have to sponsor you. Um, I did see him this morning. He was checking his Instagram to make sure it was all, you know, appropriate in case we gave him some kind of shout out. I Um, will reassure you I'm not on private, but there will be no obstetrics and gynecological thrills on mine, just photos of Poppy Sloan. And no, and you do not want any private messages about questions we are doing this on the podcast let's leave it at that yeah i'm always happy to answer <laughs> no 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 it is only on the podcast only you're exclusive to us your knowledge is exclusive all <laughs> oh, right to us. yes i have signed a sort of restraint restraint of trade yeah well welcome welcome to the potty i feel very welcome and um we haven't actually given 
um, dad or Tim or I'm just going to flip between the two because that's Tim. natural, um, the questions beforehand because we wanted it to be as though you were being asked these questions by a patient in your consulting rooms. Um, so, so I'm on the spot but I'm, I'm used to that. I'm, I spend my life on the spot. I'm ready to, to field any question that's there. Oh, I'm feeling him. confident. Let's hit him with it. I made it up the driveway here without being shot by Ivan Milat. <laughs> so I'm feeling like there's no question. You didn't you, hit a cow. There's no question you can shoot at me that's going to take me down. Well, I have the first one. Right. And it's quite simple. What made you want to do obstetrics? Yeah, well, look, I'm, I'm a first-generation doctor. I come from a family where, um, you know, my parents and really my extended family weren't uh, university people or medical people and it's therefore quite funny that I did medicine out of the blue and now two of my children mm. have done that and indeed my son is doing obstetrics and gynecology like me so I, I, I certainly planted the seed but uh, I, I couldn't tell you why I chose to do medicine. I guess I was 17 at the time that I chose to do medicine but it, it just was something that had a... I don't know, an inherent draw to me and I, and I felt drawn to do it. Um, and then when I was studying as a medical student, it was a time when IVF was in its... Uh, uh, Infancy, lol. Or, or as in a pun, in its embryonic phases. And <laughs> Professor Carl Wood, who's undoubtedly the world's most famous IVF pioneer, was the head of obstetrics and gynae at the hospital I trained at. And so he really, to me, was like a, like a cult figure, somebody to, to really admire and respect. And, and that sort of inspired me that obstetrics and gynae would be the field for me. And then I did well in the exams in, in obstetrics and gynae and thought, well, look, maybe this is a sign. Maybe this is what I should do. So when I graduated from medicine, um, I, um, I, I decided to do ONG and um, set up the necessary early years. I did an anatomy year at Monash University, just studying anatomy, and then went back and set the initial exams and entry exams and became an obstetrician. So unlike young people these days, it was sort of a transition from 18-year-old schoolboy straight into university, six years of university, mm -hmm. a few years of residency, six years of training in obstetrics and gynaecology, and then landing on the doorstep of my rooms for my first day as a specialist at 34 years of age, sort of. It's not really not, a click of the fingers. Having, hey? having no. not had a break in that time and having three children myself Oh, with Shema in that time. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, there's, it's, it's a story that evolved rather than a lifelong dream of being an obstetrician. How interesting. And did you deliver your own children or your grandchildren? Yeah, you'd, you'd be amazed, amazed how often I'm asked that question. Like, like, like sometimes multiple times a day if I mention that I have children or grandchildren to patients. Which they, he mentions more than multiple yeah, times a day that he has grandchildren. You, Can I just put that out there? Usually most consultations involve like three minutes about the patient's problem and 20 minutes about Poppy and Sloan. <laughs> yeah. And um, I'm amazed given that, you know, the those babies did exit from my daughter and daughter-in-law's vaginas that people <laughs> would would really think that I would want any 
to be involved in the business end. And, of course, whilst the overwhelming majority of births go well, you know, particularly if I'm involved, um, the, you know, there is scope for really, really, really bad shit to happen in deliveries and therefore to manage a family member or a very close friend, you are rolling the dice mm. on 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 really a very tragic set of circumstances. So the answer is whilst I was extremely engaged in my own wife and children's pregnancies, um, I certainly wasn't in the management seat. I wasn't the captain of the ship. Can I say I congratulate Dad. The whole time that I was pregnant, he never meddled. Like he really, like he never checked in on what the obstetrician (laughs) was doing. (laughs) No, he never checked me. (laughs) And he never checked in like, you know, to check what the obstetrician was doing or like I don't think he did like background research. Research on oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I'm interstate, yeah. so he doesn't know yeah. my obstetrician. I've got to say, I was really tempted to ring up the people who do the NIPT test and find out the sex of this baby wow. by some clandestine fashion, but yeah. I've resisted. I would be so, so I, mad. I know you did. would but be. The, the main, the main, I didn't. The main reason that you. I guess wouldn't is because of if something went wrong and it was in your hands, then yeah. that's an even bigger thing. It's not actually because I assume that you look at that area as a job. So that's yeah. not really the problem. No, oh, yeah. Oh, I would have no yeah. anxieties or embarrassment there. It's yeah. just that, you, you know, I want people to look upon childbirth as a beautiful, natural, mm. positive experience that for the overwhelming majority of people will be an entirely enjoyable and and positive experience. But, you know, having been practising obstetrics for 30 years, sadly I know where the wheels can fall off and uh, and where that can end up and I certainly wouldn't want to be in a leading position if that was the case with someone, you know, that close to me. You, of course, become very close to your patients. You become very engaged in their pregnancies and in their personal lives, but uh, a family member is is, is crossing yeah. a line that I wouldn't be happy to cross. And did you know that Sophie was in labour? Yes, I I, I got induced. Uh, so they Sophie did was know. induced um, with you know with not too serious a complication at the end of the pregnancy, and and it was funny you had because that itchiness, didn't you? Yeah, I had pups yeah. rash, which I, saw I was losing my marbles. I knew that Sophie's two girls' names she had chosen were Olive and Poppy, and I went into Cabrini. Oh, yeah, that's given away where I deliver. Um, <laughs> that's uh, well. I went into this m- remarkably good Catholic hospital <laughs> in another city of Australia and um, delivered a baby that morning while Sophie was in labour and they named the baby Olive. No. And I got such a shock I nearly dropped the baby and I hadn't even mentioned to the patient that Sophie was in labour and then I was consulting in the afternoon when I got the text from Nick with just a photo of Poppy mm. and the word Poppy under oh. it. And um, I've since months. bumped into that patient who was sitting in front of me at the time and she said to me, she'll never forget the look on my face when I... I saw yeah. the picture and that knew person that it was messaged a girl. me yeah. and said that you were like close to tears and and yeah. you, you had said, "Oh, I apologise that my phone's right next to me, but I I think uh, you apologised when you checked the message, but you said oh, I just really need my phone near me." And yes. you were two twenty two on the twenty second of the second. Yeah. 
Now, what was your most memorable or positive birth? Story? Oh, first, actually, how many births do you think you've been? Mm, good question. Part of? Yeah, it's ballpark. Funny. <laughs> it's funny when people ask me about how many because my reply is usually, if you know how many babies you've delivered, you haven't delivered enough. <laughs> and um, when you see blatant lies on the cover of books like Jeffrey Edelson's book and midwife Kath's book where she says she's done 10 million, uh, 10,000 deliveries, you know, where, no, you haven't, I know you haven't, mm. do the do the figures. Look, I, I probably delivered somewhere between five and 8,000 babies, but... When you're a registrar, um, for, and that's for many years, particularly when I was a registrar in England, you're in charge of a labour ward where, you know, where literally, you know, 20 or 30 babies could be born in a day. So you may not have been physically having your hands on the baby as it came out, but you were deeply involved in yeah. the delivery of those babies. So uh, suffice to say it's many thousands. Mm. And sorry, yeah, do you have a most memorable look, birth that you've been? Yeah, look, I do. The One of the things I absolutely love is when a patient says to me, whether it's at the birth or at the postnatal visit, that they say the actual words, I had a fantastic experience. And I do remember a number of times where patients have said that to me. And and I don't just mean patients who had really straightforward deliveries. They may have had a difficult delivery and yet still said to me, you know, I just want you to know I had a fantastic experience. That's something special. And I also remember a patient who delivered, um, it was actually the wife of a famous footballer who played for the team that I barracked for, and she delivered her baby and I passed the baby up onto her chest. <laughs> and she she looked me straight in the eye and said, I'm embarrassed how easy that was. Um, she's now seeing me for her third baby and uh, I, every time I see her, I remember that fantastic line she said as I pass her the baby <laughs> and I do tell her that without giving away her name or who she is, <laughs> I do quote that quote quite often. Oh, golly. I'm, I'm not quite sure easy is the way many people yeah. would describe it, but that's great. Another beautiful thing is because I do infertility and IVF, it, it, it's a beautiful bookended service when you've seen a patient who's having difficulty getting pregnant, you've been involved in their care in helping them to conceive a pregnancy, you've looked after the pregnancy and then you've delivered the oh, baby. And, and And when you drive home in the car, it might be like, four o'clock in the morning and you're driving home and I, I tell you, if, the, if that didn't give you a good feeling in the bottom of your heart that like, you know, gee whiz, that's something really special yeah. that I've been involved in from start to finish. And I do remember one funny story of a, of a patient where I'd done her IVF, I'd actually done her embryo transfer and she was in labour and there was a bit of a issue with the baby's heartbeat at the very end and I just quietly said to the lady, look, I'm going to need to do a forceps delivery. And she just said to me, you put it in there so you get it out of there. 
<laughs> and she said it in such a lovely way and she even remembered saying it when she came to a postnatal visit and I thought that was a really special comment oh, to say. That made me really feel involved from start to finish. <laughs> I'm sure it's said in a much more aggressive tone when yeah. it's said to the husband halfway through labour, you put this thing in there. <laughs> now I have to get it out. <laughs> so what's a general work week? Yeah, life. well, I, I practice, as I said, obstetric, general gynecology and IVF. So I would do an IVF list every week, which is where we do egg collections and embryo transfers. I would consult, you know, probably three or four days a week. I would do a gynecological operating list once a week. And um, if you have elective caesareans, they're booked in to fit in with that week and, um, of course, deliveries, well, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they may um, pop into the equation. Are you on call I, for those? Yeah, so I'm on call usually 24 hours a day and I work every second Saturday all day. So it's sort of like one six-day week, one five-day week in a row. And I hope we haven't actually taken you away from someone giving birth. Have we? Yeah, well, I was hoping not to get called to a birth. I'm a little anxious about sort of running down the driveway to the gate. And <laughs> the if priorities. I, if I make it. But, no, I mean, all obstetricians, because it is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, have to be involved in some sort of cover arrangement with with other doctor mm. or doctors that um, – that, uh, will cover them when they have a holiday or they have time off or and I mean I guess an obstetrician can become unwell or mm. go to a conference or have a very special personal event that they need to go away for mm. so you do need to have cover and you know I, I'm anticipating in another three or four years time that maybe even my own son will be involved in covering for me and um How amazing and that that would be an amazing amazing experience to think that, you know, your, your own son would be going along to deliver a patient, um, you know, on your behalf and I'm sure patients would be very receptive to that as a concept. I've got two very close friends in obstetrics who are identical twins and it's been a great bonus for them through their career that when one of them has a holiday, <laughs> the other one comes. Do they them. tell the patient? They do tell the patients because they do look slightly different. But um, but patients seem to be always happy that, oh, well, if I didn't have, you know, that twin one. A, I, I had twin B and he was really nice. Oh, that's so good. And you work um, purely in private obstetrics yeah. nowadays um, and, um, you know, back in the day, back in the stone age, uh, you used to work in a public hospital. Yep. What are your thoughts on um, picking or, um, or the pr- public health care in obstetrics versus private? Yep. I think the systems of healthcare vary from city to city, from country to country. I've worked in the UK where obstetrics is very much predominantly a public system, really only like extremely wealthy people and, and, um, very, very, um, affluent people would deliver their baby in a private system. Right. Uh, whereas in Australia, it's much more common to deliver privately. And, of course, I guess not just state to state but suburb to suburb as you go through various economic demographics, people would deliver publicly or privately. And to some people, 
the relationship with an obstetrician just isn't an important thing to them. They the, they just see this as a, a another you know transaction that you might go and see a doctor for for a problem for for an infection or for a gallbladder or something like that, and you just want to get cared for and delivered and then head home with your baby and the relationship with the obstetrician's not important to them. And, of course, with private health insurance becoming so expensive in Australia now, the numbers of patients um, delivering um, privately is declining. But, of course, I've worked extensively in the public system. I did all my training, of course, in the public system and worked for over 10 years as a consultant, both gynaecology and obstetrics in the public system. So I think it's for people to make their own decision based on what it is they want from their pregnancy care and whether or not they have private health insurance and where they want to deliver their baby to make a decision, an informed decision about um, where they want to deliver and whether it's in the public or private sphere. I... I've had three births and they've actually all been um, public. I have private health. I have private health um, cover, and I've had it with all three pregnancies. I didn't have pregnancy health cover, but I had. I mean, I don't know. There's, there's. You have to have pregnancy health cover for it to cover. Okay, see, online well. But I mean, there's. It's still quite a lot out of. Even if you have obstetric care, it's still a lot out of pocket. And at the time we were at, we just couldn't afford it, so we were happy to. And luckily enough, we, you know, we were happy with um, your care. Yeah, except for the last bit where I I feel like I wish I had private and I had my doctor because what happened wouldn't have probably happened. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And sometimes I think to myself with the number of phone calls we get per day at my practice with people just asking general questions or they've got bleeding in early pregnancy or they need a prescription for something or they need an ultrasound or, you know, all those patients who are private patients of mine have it. Like they have a phone number to ring all day, every day, a number they can ring when they've got a question, whereas in the public system they would have to seek out either through their GP or through an emergency department or through an early pregnancy assessment clinic at their hospital, some form of care. So, you know, of course, I'm a private obstetrician. (laughs) Of course I think it's worthwhile, Mm. but I'm certainly not condemning anyone for not going that way. And, and that's a choice they can make. And, um, and, you know, if they're comfortable with that choice, then, you know, I, I'm certainly not here to criticise anyone for going publicly. Recently, um, there's been quite a lot of talk around um, the medicalisation, um, increased medicalisation of obstetric care and, um, and, the delivery of babies themselves. Um, what's your thought or thoughts around that? And do you feel like um, obstetricians nowadays have less faith in, you know, the human body to naturally deliver a baby? Um, uh, certainly, there's two words: um, medicalization and intervention that have been. Um, in the sphere of obstetrics. So pregnancy care and delivery have become 
very sinister words. Oh, you know, yeah. my, my, my pregnancy was medicalized, my delivery, there were interventions. And I, I just find it incomprehensible that people, for that brief period of their life where they're pregnant and having a baby, medicalization is evil. And yet, in every other part of their life, if they required medical care, they would mm. gratefully accept the highest quality medical care that was available. So if they needed their appendix removed or their child's appendix removed, they'd go to a hospital, they would have a consultant anaesthetist give the anaesthetic, they'd have keyhole surgery to move the appendix. Within three months, you wouldn't even have a scar. The, the, the person would go home completely well and have been subjected to the highest levels of medical care. And indeed, in, in pregnancy, it's interesting how in Australia now, nearly 3% of babies are conceived via IVF. So the conception is often very medicalized. Mm. And then if a woman gives birth and her baby is either premature or unwell, she would very gratefully accept the highest possible level of medical care for her baby. You know, when you're in a previous generations, like, like not that long ago, well over half of babies, in fact, the vast majority of babies born under 32 weeks died due to their prematurity. Nowadays, if a baby at, say, 30 weeks died as a result of their prematurity, it would be an absolute disaster. So I, I really don't understand why this during the pregnancy and during the delivery medicalization and intervention is seen as being so sinister. And, you know, when you think of how long and how hard obstetricians have worked to become specialists and the amount of, of stress they're prepared to take on and the amount they're prepared to care about looking after patients and the countless hours of research that's gone into making having a baby in Australia safer. You know, Australia where the maternal death rate giving birth is less than one in 10,000 when there's areas in the world where it's one in 10. Mm. Um, I find it extraordinary that that's looked upon in such a sinister way and, and, and almost like the doctor is the enemy. And sometimes to the point where the, the midwives is, are their only advocate. Um, and, and are there to protect them from the doctor, which is not the case at all. And, and I can certainly say from my own point of view, my intentions are, are all with great integrity and I care greatly about my patients' welfare and their experience and their safety and the safety of their baby. And um, I'm working very hard and stressing a lot over it <laughs> to try and make sure it all works out well for them, and I'm sure Sophie could could um, back me up on the fact that during my career, which is approaching 30 years now, which is longer than Sophie's life, she's seen the effect that the, the anxiety and stress and gruelling nature of that job has had on me over the years, and uh, 
Uh, believe me, the the obstetricians out here there have nothing but your best interests mm. at heart. Yeah, it's actually quite difficult as an obstetrician's family member, and I imagine as the partner would be even more so. Um, when you do hear people questioning, you know, the the care that they have for their patients, or you know, there's always the jokes about. You know, they want you to have a cesarean so they can go play golf. And, um, you know, Dad's had to sacrifice most hobbies in his life because there hasn't been enough time for them. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not saying every obstetrician's perfect, just not, you know, no field or in medicine all the doctors are perfect, just like no industry, all the people that work in there are perfect. Um. And maybe there are some obstetricians who do have bad intentions and selfish intentions, but I think as a whole um, they do tend to get tarnished with a, a, a really unfair brush. And at the end of the day, um, unfortunately, as Dad said before, they have seen the way that childbirth can go um, and most of the time it doesn't and that's fantastic. But, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's because of their lack of faith in the woman's body no. or anything one, like that. <laughs> one thing I say to all patients at their first visit, because I like to try and keep visits like lighthearted and have a bit of banter with my patients, and I say to all my patients at the first visit, I'm not going to treat you like you're sick when you're pregnant. It's not a disease or an illness being pregnant. I'm not going to treat you like you're sick. But if something goes wrong, I will go all serious on you Mm. and the banter will stop and the serious side of me will come out and we'll get on and manage that issue. It's a good balance. Back to the the medicalisation of birth, it is a funny one because when you have a child and you tell your birth story, it's like every mother wants to just make everyone aware that they didn't have intervention mm. or something happened. Mm. They really tried mm. naturally and mm. they pretty much reassure you time and time again that there was, you know, they did everything they could to do it naturally. And it's funny that you say that because what does it matter if you actually have medical intervention or you have it natural or whatever. I just feel like there is a huge focus on being this, you know, a, a super mother that just can do everything without intervention. Mm. And, yeah, it, what you're saying is it's okay and to I'm super. That. I'm super interested in that, the way you put that statement by using the word story because there's a couple of points I'll make here. Number one, Women in countries where they don't have medical care or intervention would give anything to have it. And if you were to visit fistula hospitals in Africa, you might not be so down on medical intervention. And areas where the um, maternal maternal mortality is between 1 in 10 and 1 in 100 and the same for the neonatal mortality. The other thing is that we sort of went from a time when um, when 
women embraced medical care and the chance to have a baby in a hospital and for it to be safer, then the next step was the birth plan where women wished to be able to write down a document and plan their delivery as if by writing that document, that's the way it would work out, like studying for an exam. But now we've moved on to the next phase, which is what I call the birth story. So people are more interested in creating the story they want for their birth so that they can then project that story as as a very flattering reflection on themselves Mm. when, in fact, it's then the doctor that is blamed for not fitting in with the <laughs> with the story. That's not part of my story that I have diabetes or that I have a breech baby or that I need to have an epidural or that I have fetal distress mm. and need a caesarean section. So I am absolutely all for women being educated. I don't believe that having patients that don't know much is a good thing for me because then I can, you know, hoodwink them into doing whatever I want to do. I want people to be well-informed and educated, but I do want them to trust me and I don't want them to have too rigid a set of ideas or a story that they're trying to fulfil because the bottom line is, 10% of women will get diabetes. 10% of women will get hypertension. 3% of women will have a a breech presentation. And then, you know, 30% of women having a vaginal birth will need some form of instrumental delivery. And the overwhelming majority of women giving birth will need some form of stitches, whether they're on their perineum or on their abdomen. So, you know... No matter how much you prepare the story, it doesn't change the way the labour will go and, and, and don't put too harsh a, a set of guidelines on yourself because it will only become a source of disappointment if it doesn't yeah. work out that way. Well said. I think it's important that, you know, that's mm. out there because for some reason, yeah, we we really, really... Mm focus on that and a major yes I mean I'm all about um not creating fear about giving birth like I hated when I was getting towards the end of my pregnancy with Poppy and people would come up to me and feel like that was an appropriate time for them to tell me about the awful birth they'd have Mm -hmm. because they'd had sorry because I was like well whether I like it or not, this baby's coming out of me now. So, like, your story mm. is not helping that. No. So I'm, I'm all about, like, you know, thinking about the the nice experience you want to have and some form of positive manifestation in that. And I'm even all for if you want a birth plan of the way that you would ideally want things to go. But I, but I think it's then the importance you put on that um, as to whether the day is a success or a failure. And I think that, you know, very rarely do things go 100% how you wanted them to go. So if you look back on your experience as being a failure just because, you know, all 97 of your boxes weren't ticked, well, then that's really sad because how is the day ever going to be, you know, a good experience? uh, That's when the... The birth plan, I call it the document of disappointment. Mm. So the person's <laughs> had, a, had a perfectly good, a perfectly safe 
successful delivery, mother and baby absolutely fine to all purposes and an excellent labour and delivery. But on looking back at their birth plan, a number of things didn't work out the way they'd planned. So that's a disappointment. Um, you know, I didn't want an epidural. Well, yes, you didn't want an epidural, but did you need one during your labour? Oh, yes, I needed it, Mm. but I didn't want it. Well, Please don't be disappointed about that because mm. that 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 you were in the hands of 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 labour and mm. um and, and and you're not you are not a better birther if you do it naturally than a woman that has had an episiotomy has had um, an epidural. There is no, no difference. Or had you a placenta previa and had a cesarean. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, when you speak to women, now I've been in practice for so long, when you speak to women, and I'll give a few examples, you, you see people at a six-week checkup, you might see people a year down the track, you might see people 18 months down the track when they're pregnant for the second time. And even I see people now who who I delivered their baby 20, even 22 years ago. In fact, sometimes now I'm seeing that actual person It's amazing how rarely the discussion of their pregnancy and their interaction with me and their birth, how rarely the actual process of the birth comes up. And yet during pregnancy, it's as if the actual day or hours of the birth are the only important thing. But when you have a child and you look at that child, you're not thinking no. about the birth. You're looking at that beautiful child and the well-being of that child and putting it into that entirely appropriate perspective. Which I actually couldn't agree with more and I think is one of the main reasons why Jade and I wanted to do this podcast is because we feel like there are so many... um well, no, no, more so there's so many resources about pregnancy and the, you know, the birthday itself and then it's like all right you go home now with this thing child beautiful baby Mm. but that is such a complex being and all of a sudden it's like you're on your own and I'm not saying there aren't resources of course there are resources but you're also quite time poor then and how do you find those resources and etc so I mean that's one of the main reasons we decided we wanted to do this because we did kind of want to focus on that time and also break down those those conversations that everyone is telling you when you are pregnant that oh this happened to me and no you you know you shouldn't do this and if you can avoid that then you might you know it, it all gets like for some reason, people just love to tell you what not to do. Mm. And it actually subconsciously gets you in quite a bit of a state because already you don't know what you're going to be like as a mother mm. on top of everyone else telling you what you should and shouldn't do. Mm. So when that baby arrives, mm. you're like, great, now what? Or so, dare yawn when you're pregnant correct. and they go, oh, you think you're, you're oh, tired you just now. Wait. You have you just no wait. idea. Yeah. And I think that what what we were doing or what we are doing is important because we want people to understand that it's okay. Yeah, mm. don't set yourself to rigid set of expectations. It's interesting I've spoken to a lot of midwives who present birth classes, you know, birth classes, antenatal classes, whatever you want to call them, and, and they say to me that they try to present quite a broad range of, of, of subjects, but during the classes they're just constantly ambushed 
by people wanting to talk about epidurals and caesareans and episiotomies versus tearing. And she said, they say, you know, when they try and talk about other subjects, they're completely shut down. And even patients will come to me and and say after their birth classes, oh, you know, they, they didn't tell us enough about epidurals. And yet when you see a patient at their six-week checkup, what they're wanting to know more about is settling their baby and breastfeeding. And very rarely do people want to talk to me about whether or not they should have had an epidural. It's, you know, I'm having trouble with breastfeeding. Have you got any suggestions? I'm having trouble settling the baby. Have you got any suggestions? And the midwife who was giving the classes was desperately trying to bring up those topics, but, yeah. but but just being shut down, no, we don't want to talk about those things. We'll deal with them when we've had the baby. Wow. Well, like uh, if, if I um, speak to someone who's pregnant and they want some insight into things, instead of telling them about their delivery day, I go, now, on day three, <laughs> when you wake up yeah. and you feel like a dodgy plastic surgeon has come overnight and put the worst fake tits in <laughs> on top of your pec muscles under your chin and you are in pain with just you always thought you wanted these perky and tits <laughs> and all of a sudden you're like, yeah. take them away. I'm like, why did no yeah. one warn me about this? Or after birth pains, mm. the, oh. the uterus contracting when you start breastfeeding the afterwards. More- they were the two things that I was like, why did no one... Tell you me. know, this, this they all... would have loved to have told you, but someone had their hand up asking yeah. about, yeah. you know, yeah. will I ever walk again if I have an epidural? Mm. Um, just on to pregnancy now. Yes. We'll um, probably need to smash through a few. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to try and, like, yeah, keep it. Don't worry, I can talk all day. In fact, that's what I'm paid to do. Mm. <laughs> yes. Okay. So one of the questions was, is it safe to breastfeed while pregnant? Absolutely, yeah, and, and obviously uh, if not for that, uh, many babies in the third world wouldn't survive. No, it's absolutely safe to breastfeed while you're pregnant. Of course, breastfeeding is a relative contraceptive. It's not a reliable <laughs> no, contraceptive, no, no. but it has a contraceptive effect so that if you're trying to conceive then weaning your baby will help you to be more likely to conceive. But in the event that you have conceived, conceived, and particularly if your menstrual cycle's back to regular, then breastfeeding your baby is absolutely fine. And, um, and I wouldn't discourage that and just make sure that women are aware of the intri- increased nutritional requirements if they're pregnant as well as breastfeeding another baby. But uh, if they're careful with that and have a healthy diet, um, then that's absolutely fine. And if you are breastfeeding and you fall pregnant, do you find it common that that child actually doesn't like the milk as it changes? Well, milk will change flavour um, due to any number of causes. You know, The most common is if a woman requires antibiotics for mastitis, uh, we often find that the baby will sort of go onto the breast and then look up oh, at the mother that. as if to say, what What are you serving <laughs> me up here today? Um, but, no, I think that probably the more important thing is that 
in pregnancy, often the supply will wane. By then, the, the breastfeeding baby has other food sources. It's not getting very much from the breastfeeding, so it moves on to the next stage of its sort of nutrition. Um, and I guess similar to that, uh, I mean, assuming that babies are younger when they're being breastfed, but I guess babies, uh, children can be <laughs> breastfed until whatever age you choose to do so. But is is there a time that you would advise that you would wait between having a baby and, you know, conceiving your next baby? The most important factor with that would be if a woman has experienced a significant delay in getting pregnant and she does want another baby, and particularly if she's older, like say over 35, over 38, I would encourage her to start trying again sooner rather than later. But the most important medical reason involved there would be that if there had been significant complications of the original delivery, such as severe prematurity, severe diabetes, um, you know, an emergency caesarean section and any complications following that, we, of course, want the woman to be fully recovered from her first birth before she takes on a second birth, particularly, for example, in the case of diabetes or hypertension, which are things that, you know, could well recur. So it's certainly a patient-by-patient decision, but I would say that in my practice I would tend to be a person who encourages people that it is fine to conceive again and if they do get pregnant again quickly that it's very unlikely to be a problem. So when when they say, because my sister-in-law just had a emergency C-section and they said do not get pregnant in the next 12 months. No, I would... Look, I, I certainly am not here to bag any obstetrician's <laughs> advice or or to disagree, but, you know, I certainly know that from my own practice, if if a patient saw me at their six-week visit, they'd had a caesarean section, they'd made an uncomplicated recovery, um, that I would be happy for them to conceive again, even as early as three months after yep. the um, delivery, although you may suggest the husband should be arrested. But the... <laughs> the um, I would, I would definitely say that in that sort of six month to 12 month window, it would increase the likelihood that we would recommend a repeat cesarean section rather than a trial of scar. Although I don't. And trial of scar is what people also call a VBAC, which is vaginal birth after cesarean. They're the same thing. Um, so (laughs) I would, I would say that, um, that might, although despite it, there's probably not a lot of evidence, that might come into your decision-making um, about whether you would allow a patient to try for a vaginal birth after that caesarean. Is it but because no. of the scar? Is that why they say don't? Yeah, well, the... the the so reason like we, any wound, it's healing. Yeah, within us, within Australia, we've always called a labour after a caesarean a trial of scar, and I think it's a good name because really the issue we're dealing with when someone labours after a caesarean is that we're concerned about the caesarean scar, not the abdominal scar, the scar on the uterus. Ah. And that's why the American term VBAC or vaginal birth after caesarean it's taking over in Australia as as the terminology, and I it have sounds no, a bit nicer than trials. Yeah, I have no great 
problem with people calling it either. I, I don't like being called an OBG, which is an American term for an O and G. But anyway, I, I won't take offence. But um, you're not going to get the number plate. If I call, if I call um, um, a V back a trial of scar, I apologise for confusing it. Um, okay, a bit about morning sickness. Jade and I <laughs> both. Um, I mean, along with a lot of women suffered with this and probably what was the thing that I was the most anxious about getting pregnant again because of having to experience that again. Um, do, do we know what causes mm. morning sickness? And to be honest, I hate answer. that it's called morning sickness because especially when I was pregnant with Poppy, I was like, this is no. bullshit. This is all sickness. day, every day. This is waking up in the middle of the night sickness. This is not morning That's sickness. 24 hour sickness. We'll call it morning sickness because it doesn't really have another name. Um, so what do we know what causes it? Well, because it's so common, a lot of studies have been done looking at morning sickness. There's certainly an area in the base of the brain which um, has receptors that, that cause nausea and clearly something from present pregnancy stimulates those receptors but the honest answer is no we don't know the actual cause yeah. interestingly there's there's very strong sort of demographic links with um with morning sickness it's much more common in higher socioeconomic groups uh therefore a duchess would be at most risk of morning sickness and, in fact, was hospitalised in all three pregnancies with what's called hyperemesis. So that was an an extreme example of how that demographic can get morning sickness. But And there are certainly some cultural groups who, you know, it's not heard of. One reassuring so thing. So basically I'll- Dad's saying we're both princesses and when people have real-life stresses to deal with, they don't suffer from morning like, sickness. Like having to walk you to focus. the well to get today's water. They don't worry so much about the nausea. No, that's not a criticism of people at all. And, and, and interestingly also that some people will have severe morning sickness in one pregnancy and not in another in any particular order. So, um, yes, it can happen in pregnancy. Yes, it can recur. Uh, no, we don't really know what causes it. And, yes, there are treatments for it. And thank goodness in the overwhelming majority of cases, um, it is self-limiting to about 12 weeks, although I'm well aware and Sophie's well aware that may not be <laughs> the case. And I am a story that it was better the second time around. So yes. let's just hope that trend continues as I have all eight of my children. Wow. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not having eight children. No, I'm kidding. Um, and speaking of, do you think it's true that um, gender can play a part in suffering from morning no, sickness? No, there's no. no relationship between gender and morning sickness, and really even um, it's commonly felt that it's more common with twins, that association is tenuous at best. Yeah. So they say that because of the high levels of... Of HCG, um, but really... It's 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 not that it's it's something much more complicated, and I think it would be um, pulling your leg to suggest I know what causes it. Yeah, and on that topic, any do you think there are any um, signs or you know the way you carry or anything like that in pregnant pregnancy that do point towards one gender over the other? Well, look, it, it's interesting that I've done um, 
I've done obstetrics for nearly 30 years and I still actually don't know what people mean when they say they're carrying a certain way, <laughs> like they're carrying high or they're carrying low. And I often think, um, I really don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> there's your a, body shape, there's a baby in a uterus that is arising from the pelvis and therefore it fills your body feels a little bit of like a glass of water from the bottom towards the top. It sort of can't fill any other way. So when someone says to me, oh, I'm carrying very low, I just I nod knowingly, but I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> so that's a no. You can't that's tell no. what gender yes. it is. <laughs> Great. And hemorrhoids previously... Are they likely to reoccur in a second or third? Yeah, pregnancy? look, hemorrhoids are caused by venous dilation and you can imagine where hemorrhoids are that the uterus is pressing in the pelvis on the pelvic veins causing back pressure. So hemorrhoids, vulval varicosities and varicose veins in the legs are all related um, and also blood noses, um, bleeding gums when you brush your teeth, uh, sinus congestion and headaches um, are all related to venous congestion. So those that are, are, are back pressure type symptoms like hemorrhoids and varicose veins, yes, they do tend to occur and not wanting to be negative but to be factual, do tend to recur in pregnancy and earlier with each pregnancy. Yeah. And do they completely go away? I mean, I'm not a hemorrhoid gal, gal, but well, maybe yeah. I am, and I just don't want to say it. But I have varicose veins or pregnancy veins, I like yeah. to call them, and they have not left my legs. Yeah. So, I mean, getting varicose veins is very familial. So, if you do have varicose veins, you know, blame your mother. And she, you will probably find that she had them in her pregnancies. Um, and so really how much varicose veins resolve and how quickly they resolve will be due to the elasticity within those vessels, which is a sort of genetic thing. And so that if you're a person that's going to get varicose veins, I'm afraid you're just going to get them. And if you're a pers person who's not going to get them, they will probably subside very significantly and for some lucky people go away completely. I had one in my in the inside of my vagina and it was well they said it was due to the pressure. Yeah. It did go. So that's but, called a vulval varicosity. Right. And in the most extreme forms that can make the labia look like quite literally a, a, a bunch of red grapes. Um and Jade? No, it didn't look like that. I think it was more like a red, red rose, but go on. And at the time of delivery, uh, you need to reassure people that usually, even with severe cases, the patient can deliver um, vaginally. And it is amazing when the baby's delivered, those veins settle down like before your eyes, like that, like in a matter of an hour, they will have subsided very significantly. There you go. Um, and we're going to move on to some questions about labour itself. Yes. Um, keeping it glamorous, we've gone from a vagina that just looks like um, a bunch of red grapes to Roses. pooing. Um, do most women poo during birth? Uh, 
uh, during vaginal birth, yes, and indeed as unsavoury as that might sound, it is usually an indication that they're actually pushing in the right place. And, and so for us as obstetricians and midwives, if a patient poos, it's often a sign of full dilation mm-hmm. and a sign that the head is descending in the pelvis. Um, of course, you may be aware that years ago women used to have an enema uh, when they arrived at the labour ward Um uh, routinely, and in fact, some women st- still do request an enema. But um, no, it is it is very common to poo during. And birth. if I don't think I pooed during birth, do you think I probably did? But the midwife was just really They're good so at swiping. Quick. Yeah, so usually um, there can be other indicators in the room that you have <laughs> pooed, um, like my husband. Oh my god, you just did a poo in front of everybody. I think he oh. means more the odor. <laughs> One of my mentors who's sadly deceased this year in his late 80s told me the story that when he was a registrar at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne, um, two Greek ladies who didn't speak a word of English came in in labour screaming and yelling and it was the midwives' jobs to strip them naked and shower them, give them an enema and put them in a hospital gown and then the doctor would come down and perform a vaginal examination on each and um, see how far dilated they were. So the two screaming Greek women in labour were put through the shower, put in their gowns, given enemas and he examined them and he said, uh, the lady on the left is five centimetres and the lady on the right is her mother and she's not pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> but she's had a nice cleanse. <laughs> she's feeling light. Oh, so light. That's so funny. Oh, there you go. Um, and in general, uh, births consecutive, uh, like quicker in consecutive um, births yeah, than I'll, your first. I'll say one sort of um, medical student textbook thing now to help people think about their birth, and that is that they say that it's about um, the power, the passage, and the passenger. So the power is the strength of the contraction of the uterus, The passage is the uh, pelvis and vagina and the passenger, of course, is the baby. So those three things contribute to the speed of labour. So in a second birth, the power is stronger because the uterus usually contracts more regularly and stronger. Is that just because it knows what it's doing? Yeah, well, it's just something the uterus has done before and, and memory in the uterine muscles enables it to do it more efficiently. And thus, women getting into established labour in a second or third baby is quicker because that sort of phase of building up to regular strong contractions is sort of removed and it heads off with really strong contractions. Of course, the passage has been somewhat pre-dilated and the passenger... You don't well, need to remind us of that. I always say to patients when they're worried about the size of their baby is, is it is far more important the position the baby's in mm. than its size. And so it's a. if you imagine if you're trying to put a basketball through a basketball hoop 
the ball will go through no matter which way you present it because the hoop is round and the ball is round in every dimension. But a baby's head, when you look at your baby's head when it's born, it is very unevenly shaped and the pelvis is unevenly shaped. So delivering a baby is much more like trying to get a lounge suite through a doorway. And it's absolutely essential that you present the narrowest part to the widest part of the doorway so that you can then winkle it through. So even though babies tend to get bigger with each pregnancy, and that's, of course, needing to take into account how many weeks gestation the woman is when she delivers, they tend to be bigger. However, the labours tend to be quicker. Well, I can completely agree with you on that because all three came at 38 weeks for me and two were posterior which needed an episiotomy for one, the first one, and they needed an epidural to try and slow it down and turn. And the middle child was a natural birth because the position was perfect, perfect. and she yeah. came out in an hour and 25 minutes. So I I really, yeah, believe that that's, yeah. that you're not bullshitting. That is not bullshitting. Mm. Oh, good. But Jade's given you the tip of approval. But you don't sit on her to watch the telly. No, definitely <laughs> not. And is there any way that you can prepare your body and your baby to be in a good position for birth? Uh, well, I would always encourage women to stay active during pregnancy because clearly gravity will help you. If a baby's head first and you're upright, gravity will help push that baby into the right position. However, there is labour is a very dynamic process. So the baby's head doesn't just like plonk into the pelvis and go through in that direction. It, it goes down and around in a corkscrewing motion. Yeah. Therefore, if it corkscrews round the right way, well, that's great. And if it corkscrews round the wrong way, well, that's not so great. So there are certainly, you know, being active and upright and mobile during your pregnancy has lots of benefits. Um, but you could be unlucky. Yeah. And do they find that um, of uh, labour, but do they find that that is familial at all? Um, Just look, say yes because mum had quick labours yeah. and I want her quick labours. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I was asked if I was confident when you were in labour that all would go well and given that you're a doppelganger of your mother um, <laughs> giving birth to a doppelganger of your father yeah. um, I, I just had every confidence that given her quick labors it would go well I, I do think that anything that's in your family whether it's quick births or diabetes or high blood pressure it, it, there's a trend towards that but not a guarantee yeah, yeah. Totally. and is it fair to say that midwives are natural birth experts and obs are cesarean experts Oh, I would say I would say that's very unfair, mm. and and I think where that's unfair is it suggests that obstetrics is about delivering babies, which it certainly isn't. Indeed, you could train a general surgeon to do a cesarean section because it is, you know, a relatively straightforward surgical procedure that obstetricians get really good at because they do a lot of them and obstetricians should be able to handle the really difficult ones because they've been trained to. But in general, 
you know, obstetrics is about caring for pregnancy mm. from the first visit to the last. And, um, and, you know, I would be quite offended if someone thought that I'm really just a sophisticated birther. I look after pregnancies. I look after the delivery. I look after the postnatal issues. I look after counselling during and after a pregnancy and looking towards a future pregnancy. And, you know, I've always been lucky enough to have a very good relationship with midwives. I don't see them as someone that I'm competing with for credit for looking after pregnant women. And as I said right at the start of this, I don't see myself as any less an advocate for the well-being of women than anyone else involved in in, mm. in pregnancy care. So, no, I, I don't see myself as a caesarean sectionist. But midwives I, can't be a caesarean expert. So no, in that and, question it's like, well, they only are natural, but if there's anything more, then an obstetrician needs to step in, correct? Yeah, and, and a good midwife is in fact very good at assessing patients, at examining patients, at reading like of having a feel for the way a labour's going. And, you know, I've worked with some wonderful midwives over the years at many different hospitals, both here and in the UK. And the ones that stand out in my mind over 30 years as my most memorable midwives I've worked with are the ones that just, if they call you and say, Tim, we need you to come to the labour ward, I don't even ask them why. I just know if they told me to come, I need to go because they they know what they're doing. And and if they say to me, no, everything's going to be fine, I trust them. Mm. So I, I don't feel I work against midwives, I, I, I work with them. Great. And we'll be very proud of the relationship I've had with midwives over the years because I think it's been a very positive one. And um, what are your um, thoughts or what do you think Australian obstetricians' general thoughts are on home births? Um, and someone sent in this question and said because um, often in the UK and in New Zealand, home births are um, endorsed by obstetricians but they don't tend to be endorsed by obstetricians in Australia. Yeah, well, I mean, Australia is is a gigantic nation with very few people in it. Um, and many of them living in massively congested cities where to get people out to the houses, you know, would be difficult, um, and then others living in incredibly remote areas where getting people out to do the delivery would be very difficult, whereas countries like England are made up, apart from obviously London, of of just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of villages that aren't very far apart. So I think you do need to remember that there are geographical influences yeah. on the availability of home birth. The other thing is that if you admire home birth in the UK system of childbirth, well, if you feel tempted to go over to the UK and have your baby, I encourage you to have a crack <laughs> and I give you my my warmest best wishes and I hope it goes well for you and I suggest you read the book that Sophie just recommended on her Instagram, um, This Is Going To Hurt, which talks about obstetrics in the UK. I've worked there for two years. I know what it's like and... I say enjoy your birth in Australia because it's a great one. <laughs>
and um, thoughts on vaginal seeding and can you explain yeah, what, what vaginal seeding, seeding yeah. is? So vaginal seeding is a repulsive concept <laughs> that, was, repulsive. that was floated a couple of years ago by morons. Um, it was based on a paper that was published in a nothing journal worth no more than a women's weekly and was based on three patients. So this was a scientific publication based on three patients. How, so, how can they do that? Um, because 90, probably 93% of journal articles are not worth the mm. paper they're written on. Uh, it's even been shown in the most eminent medical journals that a significant proportion of papers are totally unhelpful. So to stop being nasty and getting on with what it is, is um, where when a baby is born by caesarean section, you pass a cotton swab into your vagina and then put, and therefore it will now be covered in normal bacteria uh, from the vagina and wipe it in the mouth of the baby so that the baby will be exposed to those vaginal bacteria and therefore um, exposed to the natural immune response of passing through the vaginal canal that it missed out on um, by being born by caesarean. So this is, this yeah. is an example of the completely inappropriate use of the word immune which 99.9% of the population have no understanding of, um, <laughs> thus the fraudulent multivitamin industry that exists in this country. And um, when the first few babies start dying of herpes simplex virus and group B strep infection because somebody has actually put a swab from their mother's vagina into their mm. mouth and given them those infections, well, I think we'll find that seeding will just disappear off yeah. into the sunset. Um, in order to to hide the repulsive nature of what they're doing, they've started saying now that you should just rub it on the baby's cheek. So they're already backpedalling at a million miles an hour. And indeed, at the hospital I work at, um, seeding... Uh, it is banned for any medical staff, doctor or midwife, to take any part in vaginal seeding, including pro even providing a simple swab. So if a patient wants to perform seeding on their baby, they need to bring their own swabs, they need to swab their own vagina, and they need to um, inoculate their own child in their mouth with their vaginal secretions. Wow. So, um, That's yeah. intense. Yeah. I don't feel strongly about it or anything. <laughs> oh, it's no, just, not at all. It's just something that I'm, I'm all for. It's just a light topic, isn't mm. it? Um, moving on to miscarriage. Yes. Um, how long after a completed miscarriage can you start to try to conceive again? Great question. And um, obviously one in six pregnancies ends in miscarriage and because I am in my practice in a demographic with significantly older patients, um, 
by the age of 40, it's one in four pregnancies. So I, I, I wow. basically am looking after miscarriages every week. Wow. There is no reason to delay or quarantine yourself from trying to conceive again. And please don't let anyone tell you you should wait three months mm. or anything like that. When you've had a miscarriage, um, whether you've had a curette or not, as soon as your next cycle starts, you can start trying to get pregnant. And indeed, there's decades of evidence that show that women are actually more fertile after they've had a curette mm. so that if you've had a miscarriage and had a curette, for goodness sake. Get right, on that horse. Yeah, right on the back of that increased <laughs> chance of getting pregnant. I didn't and, know what you were going to say. Know, you were riding you were then. Out of, then. It was great. But I... I I've had a number of patients who've had a very long delay in getting pregnant, then finally conceived, whether it be on IVF or spontaneously, and then tragically have a miscarriage after all that waiting. You you do a curette and the patient's pregnant again in like two months. Wow. And you think, wow, you know, like, I mean, obviously the fact that they had just been pregnant suggested that they were fertile, yeah. but no delay, no need for delay, and please don't delay. And is there anything that can be done to avoid um, recurrent miscarriages? Well, we see a lot of patients with recurrent miscarriage and there are a number of investigations that can be done. How many do you tend to have had before it's classed as recurrent? Yeah, it's usually classed as recurrent if you've had three consecutive miscarriages and that has to be miscarriages confirmed with either ultrasound or, um, Mm. you know, blood pregnancy tests. Um, and you haven't had a successful pregnancy during those three miscarriages. Mm. Um, and really the main causes of miscarriage are the fact that the baby does not have a normal genetic makeup. So we've all got 46 chromosomes in 23 pairs and more than half of miscarried pregnancies the um, baby has either a missing or an extra chromosome. And having eggs with missing or extra chromosomes becomes more common with age and therefore the miscarriage rate goes up with age. A couple of less common but still important causes of miscarriage are if either the the, um, male or female in the um, partnership has what's called a balanced translocation. That's where they have a slight misarrangement of their chromosomes that means they're perfectly normal, or who is, but they're normal enough. <laughs> and they're, however, when they produce sperm or eggs, which involves their chromosome complement being split in half, a little bit too much goes one way and a little bit too much goes the other way. Uh, a, a little bit too much one way, a little bit mm. too little the other way. And that actually is more common than you'd think. Probably 4% of people with recurrent miscarriage will have that. And the other one is uh, a test called antiphospholipid antibodies. That's been around a long time and is well worth having checked. And the final one is to check if there's any abnormality of the uterus, like a fibroid in the uterine cavity or, more importantly, a septum in the uterine cavity. But the routine use of things like aspirin or heparin or clexane is really not indicated unless there is an actual medical indication. 
Would you say the majority of times you would not find a definitive cause oh, for their recurrence? Absolutely. And the great news is that if you look at the um, statistics from recurrent miscarriage clinics that are set up in very big hospitals where they are seeing, you know, you know, thousands of women who fit the criteria of three miscarriages in a row and who have had the investigations I've mentioned, the overwhelming majority of patients who've been to that clinic subsequently go on to have a successful pregnancy. Oh, so, yeah. so as much as three miscarriages must be a harrowing experience, my advice is that um, it it is likely, in fact, very likely to end with a successful pregnancy. Sorry to end things so suddenly, but as we said earlier, we decided to cut this episode into two parts um, so that it didn't go on for two hours. Um, so next week we will be covering your questions about cesareans, tears, VVAX, fertility, infertility, and postpartum. And, and thank you. Not farting. It's actually <laughs> Billy in the background doing. And thank you, Billy, for the <laughs> farting noises. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.